Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema, both in front of and behind the camera, by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. I highly recommend visiting their site to not only discover other great podcasts, but also you can find links to where you can view the short films that we discuss in each episode for free online. Also, you can now contact us via our Twitter account, at Changing Reels. AC, as well as listen to our show on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, hopefully you'll go in and give us a nice rating because it always helps to attract other viewers. Andrew, how are you doing today? Uh, hanging in there. Hanging in there. I was able to blow off most of the post-election rage and confusion with our last episode on Medicine for Melancholy, which, by the way, listeners, that last episode came courtesy of a viewer's choice or a listener's choice. So if you have any suggestions, we would certainly love to hear them as we will be glad to create episodes to kind of cater to your likes and, hey, hey, maybe even dislikes, because we, we tend to like a lot of the things that we talk about, but maybe someone wants to suggest something not so much. Otherwise, you know, I'm kind of getting through, and I'm looking forward to talking about The Midnight Swim, because it's very personal for me, but obviously before we get started, we have our customary shorts, do we not? That's right, and you picked a really interesting short this week. Do you want to let listeners know what your short film is? Well, it is Journal Anime by Donato Sansoni. One of the big reasons I picked this is to kind of serve as an emotional counterweight to The Midnight Swim, because The Midnight Swim is a very lyrical, gentle, and emotionally complex movie. I wanted my short to almost go the opposite direction, because the narrative of The Midnight Swim is is relatively easy to follow, even if the technique sometimes doesn't follow suit. And with journal anime, I was going through some of the short websites that you kindly provided to me, and this caught me immediately. Over at Can't Stop the Movies, I've done a few different looks at different experimental directors. Maya Darren, Stan Brakhage, Kenneth Anger to name a few. So I've gotten to really enjoy the complex emotions that abstract images or really aggressive and sometimes nebulously contemplative short films can bring. Journal anime is definitely on the aggressive scale of things. If I'm remembering correctly, the director, Mr. Sansoni, he had been creating these partly as a response to the Charlie Hebdo attacks, like him trying to make sense of the images and the news. What ended up hitting me a lot with journal anime was this no-bullshit approach it took to recognizing propaganda, because Sansone's technique is to flip through a newspaper, flip through the news as it goes from week to week, and then he animates on it. He draws an immediate visceral reaction. Early on, we see models, and he's cutting to the core of what it is people are expecting of these models, because one uh, is fully clothed in the newspaper, and then he draws her slowly losing her clothes and then her naked and ashamed. That aggressive subtext of images and how the newspapers and news media lay them out so that we get that reaction is 
underlined heavily throughout. Another really striking image I enjoyed, well, <laughs> enjoyed maybe the wrong word, <laughs> but I found it really interesting was when cops are standing around a dead body in another shot as he draws a ghost basically rising from the body, the cops take out their guns and the ghost has its hands up. And on its own, it's a kind of a funny, absurdist image. But going back to how the short aggressively presents the subtext, we've got a huge issue worldwide of authority figures blaming the victim. I mean, obviously, here in America, we've got Trayvon Martin. And while journal anime is definitely more... Anglo-centric than any of the issues involving Trayvon Martin. That spoke to me, that idea that the authority figures, without context to the image, that immediate reaction is going to be, how are the authorities going to end up implicating or blaming the victim? I mean, considering that that is such an issue. I think one of the things that really makes this a good response or counterpoint to Charlie Hebdo is, while it was a tragedy, I did not like how Hebdo tended to punch down, even if they were trying to use racist caricatures for satirical effect. Here, it's not punching down. It's just kind of angrily looking at the subtext, like the quick image of man in a mask who transforms into a, a terrorist looks like cutting fruit. <laughs> it's weird to say without watching it, but that was my consistent impression, and I needed that kind of emotional aggression. I just needed something like this that challenged my mind, kept me involved so that I wasn't, you know, swaying too far into depression or melancholy or anything. There's a lot that he tackles in this film, and I could see people actually getting depressed by some of the images, and especially how aggressive they are. And the one thing that really struck me is how, through all of the hard images that he presents, like the woman who was horrified when she spray-painted black, the image of Hitler almost as like a hip-hop DJ, is the way how this short constantly reminds us when all this stuff is going on in the real world, we tend to go further and further in pop culture and ignore the stuff like I, I like the idea of, there was an image of the astronaut deflating when it's saying like that's the space program right now that's not important that's the, a great the, point the yeah, great, great point uh, um image and because i'm a huge fan of the show and i mean, have been since a wee lad when he reimagines the simpsons opening where they all get out of the car and they're running for the couch but the couch is actually in a bombed out building in the middle east and the Simpsons kind of stop there and, and look at these guys. For them, this is their home. That stuff hit home for me. Just thinking about, as we've even seen with this recent election, there was a lot of hate, anger, confusion. Then quickly people are delving into the world of Fantastic Beast and doing whatever they can to distract themselves from what's going on. It's like, well, it's that distraction that keeps causing this problem. So I, I thought it was a really fascinating short. I wouldn't go that far, but I am largely with you when you're talking about how folks have been using pop culture to kind of cope. I, I think the big problem is when people start using pop culture to make that a messaging point. I feel for cast of Hamilton right now. It's kind of the trendy liberal thing to enjoy it and listen to the music, but they haven't really asked to be a cultural touchstone, not necessarily in the way Jon Stewart positioned himself as a figure of pop and satire that we could look up to. And then when we asked him 
what should we do? He just threw his hands back and said, oh, well, I'm a comedian. That's why I'm happy you kind of zeroed in on that image of <laughs> Hitler becoming almost a queer positive hip hop DJ. Because he's got like this rainbow hat with the swastika on it. We're seeing this a lot. And it's alarming about how the politicians who are most dangerous are being treated still as anomalies or amusing side notes to history. Like I, I was watching um, Rep. Keith Ellison here in the States, who I hope becomes a big voice in America now moving forward, was on a show where he was trying to get people to take Donald Trump seriously, to say okay this this guy could win and everyone just started laughing because they saw him as this buffoon that image of hitler being repurposed into uh, again kind of a weirdly queer positive hip-hop selfie-taking dj fits along those lines it's covering over or literally painting over in this case something dangerous with symbols that we are comfortable with and aren't comfortable with, because I certainly wouldn't blink twice at a rainbow hat or, or a queer positivity hat. But if I saw a swastika on it, that that's where I would kind of start doing a few double takes. And that's just one of the big strengths of Sansone's short here, is how we paint over these threats or this misery with pop culture in a way that... I mean, it's a good coping mechanism, but it's not a good strategy. When you're talking about the hat, the imagery that it evokes, it reminded me of election night here in Toronto where I was going to an event downtown. So I was at a just a local pub getting a bike to eat and everyone was pretty much glued to the screens as the polls were now closing. And there was one guy in the place that had, you know, one of the, the red Make America Great hats, but he also had like a Trump Pence shirt, and I was observing people observing him. People were kind of confused because they were like, well, is he doing that as a joke? Is it serious? And you could hear the chatter, and a lot of people were just kind of brushing it off as, oh, he's trying to get attention. And as I was leaving, he was outside smoking with some other individual, and he having like a serious conversation. I was like, no, this guy is he's an actual Trump supporter. But it was interesting that everyone in that bar at the time pretty much just took him as just a comedian, someone doing that for show. And it goes back to, as you said, we're constantly deflecting the true danger. You know, we think like, oh, it's just he's just supporting another entertainer and he himself trying to, to be the center of attention. It's like, huh, all right. There's no easy answer there. And I think that maybe the biggest thing recognized now is those people, <laughs> irony does not apply. It's real. It's there. We need to deal with it. So mine was obviously aggressive and terribly serious, at least for me, considering what's been going on. I'm really curious what brought you to your short, which is also animated. Well, my short is called Life is Beautiful, and it was directed by Ben Brand, and not to be confused with the Oscar-winning Italian film Life is Beautiful. And this film is basically about a man who was given a raw deal pretty much from birth. He was grown smaller than the average person and has lived his entire life pretty much being ignored by society because of his height. And he basically just gets fed up with the world and decides that he's going to kill himself. But as with many things, death isn't exactly what he expects it to be. I'm going to leave it there in terms of the description. The reason why I chose it 
I watched a couple of shorts that were more in line with the Midnight Swim in terms of the dramatic themes. But Midnight Swim was such an interesting film for me personally that I wanted something that was not so heavy on the dramatic side. I liked this film because it's short, it's amusing, there's no dialogue within it, but it hits on one of the central themes, or I should say one of the central recurring themes in the Midnight Swim, and that's in terms of like what happens to us when we die. And I thought that this film tackles it in a really interesting way because the main character for the pretty much is tired of the daily rat race and getting pushed around and in death he still finds himself in yet another more elaborate rat race Um, so that was what kind of stood out to me for this film this is one of those movies that i'd be really curious to watch just with a bunch of strangers and i will respect your wishes on on keeping that part more of a twist but the twist is kind of where it didn't lose me exactly, and I've been trying to kind of repurpose the title in relation to it. Considering what happens in Life is Beautiful, it's like a cynical joke of a title. When I was trying to think about what Anton, the plucky poor little guy who is our main character, was going through, I was trying to figure out if it was a reflection on his inability to recognize the beauty of life around him, or if it was just a darkly comic joke on him, because it works both ways. One of the more interesting threads throughout Life is Beautiful that does end up playing is how he hasn't found a way to make his size work in the world. There are these almost teasing reminders in the background. There is this absurdly tall man who is able to trim trees with ease. In my favorite little swerve, there's a part where he is riding on the bus, Anton is, and because he's so small, he's kind of at butt height with a lot of these folks and this huge man in a sweatsuit is there and he just starts farting and you can just see the resignation in anton's face but then when the bus stops we find out hey the big guy's a prize fighter you know and he's on a way to a celebration about him so this seemed more like a critique but sympathetically so of anton because we see throughout the entire life the sex aspect that has overlooked him is extremely emphasized and a lot of those family photos that give us a glimpse of what it was like for him growing up people are kissing and snuggling and clearly getting intimate and in (laughs) in that one amusing moment where people begin to get intimate literally right on top of him because he is so small in an elevator the twist kind of makes sense with that in there but just i don't know it's one of those things where i kind of wish i could watch this without a title i wouldn't have that conflict in my head but at the same time having that conflict is this a cynical joke especially considering the way it looks like all this is going to be an eternal cycle at the end or whether it's a failure of anton to find some way to make life beautiful when everyone else has been able to use their physical uniqueness to their advantage i think for anton though i always i took it more so, and I guess maybe from a uh, more of a cynical aspect, but I always thought as his one desire is to escape this horrible life that he's in. And at the end of the day, you can't escape 
fate. He's destined to possibly relive this exact same life, or maybe it might be something brand new, but life's the one thing he can't get out of. I like how you pointed out the juxtaposition between him and everyone else in the world, because they really do play like that scene where he's crossing the street, just a simple act like that, and you're seeing him get kicked in the face repeatedly. I noticed all the other individuals are, for the most part, the animation is done well and they're proportionate. But for him, he's not only really tiny, but he has massive eyes. He's seeing the world, he's seeing everything, but no one is seeing him, right? And I always thought that was a kind of interesting juxtaposition. I guess it, I'd indulge more in the, the cynical side of it, especially when you get to the end. But I would also argue that in the latter part of the short is when you finally really see him kind of step up and not want to be pushed around anymore and he's going for that great goal not knowing what the prize is and then when he gets the prize you're like that's not the prize you wanted yeah and i like your point about his eyes while his shortness obviously is a detriment to him he's able to see a lot of things clearly and that's where i think it becomes maybe less cynical and more just tragic if anton is able to pick up on these things and and notice them it makes me wish he'd become a writer to draw on his powers of observation and make use of his stature to kind of comment on the world even the action he takes midway through it kind of shows how he's not using either of his gifts properly or properly maybe isn't the right term but he's not really utilizing his ability to see clearly or his size and then ends up comedically screwing up what he is trying to do and i'm trying to talk vaguely there (laughs) but uh (laughs) this is complicated i'm gonna definitely pass it around between a few different friends and some other cineasts this is probably the least clear short we've had so far I know that The Giant was another challenging short that we talked about, but even then, just the overwhelming menace and the way that the world seemed hostile towards the main character there helped give it a bit more of a, I guess, conversational drive to talk about. But here, I admit to being a little lost. There's a lot to talk about, and I'd just be interested to get more than a few different people's reaction to this. For the listeners, you know, we are being vague because it's one that we think you should definitely go to the Modern Superior site and click on the link for this one and just watch it. Again, I think it's maybe three, four minutes tops. Because there's no dialogue, there's a lot for the viewer to interpret. But I was really taken by it. And I'm sure if I revisit again, especially after hearing your points, I might look at it from a different angle. But I I thought it was really engaging. And it's a nice lead into the Midnight Swim in terms of some of the themes that, that we've been kind of dancing around. No, I completely agree, and that'll be interesting, too, because the Midnight Swim is a little murky in its own answers. So, Courtney, I'd say, is that a good enough segue to change a reel or two? You know what? Yep, let's take a break, we'll change the reels, and we'll come back with the Midnight Swim. Our main film today is the 2014 drama quasi-mystery, I'm going to say, The Midnight Swim, written and directed by Sarah Adina Smith, with Shasheen Seth serving as cinematographer. The film follows three half-sisters who, after their mother mysteriously goes missing, returns home and experiences several strange occurrences while, I guess I should say, after jokingly 
summing a local legend. I want to leave it there because we're going to have a lot to discuss. <laughs> I don't know, Andrew, if you think that's a, a good introduction to this film without revealing everything all at once because there's so much to talk about. Courtney, I do not envy anyone who has had to try and write a description or an easy caption for The Midnight Swim. Even the Netflix description, it says three sisters form suspicions that supernatural forces are at play in their mother's disappearance. And watching the film, I don't agree with that description at all. Oh, that is way off. I know, and that's why this is really difficult to talk about. Because last time we discussed with Medicine for Melancholy how some people could easily critique it, and they would be technically right but totally wrong in saying that nothing happens. And just for a moment of levity, a dramatic reading of one Midnight Swim review. You wait for an hour and a half for something to happen, but absolutely nothing happened. Nothing happened, 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 nothing happened. And then it goes on like that for a while. No, 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 nothing. That, to me, shows that this reviewer is not exactly in tune with subtlety or tone or texture in a movie. It also highlights a problem I've had, actually, in getting people to watch it. I'll say, gotta watch The Midnight Swim. And they'll ask, oh, okay, what's it about? And then, uh, three sisters... And there are problems. But nothing I can say or do gives an easy description for any of this. One of the most audacious things about The Midnight Swim is how it eschews a lot of genre conventions, either in terms of kind of like a chamber drama with the three sisters. I could say, oh, you know, that's like Bergman, or it's like Robert Altman's Three Women. But in those movies, women are employed more overtly as symbols, psychological or otherwise. I think Pauline Kael took some issue with Bergman's Cries and Whispers, partly for that reason, because they weren't individuals so much as manifestations of how Bergman looked at women psychologically. Here, I mean, these are distinct individuals, yet even in the beautiful opening scenes, I think specifically of the three girls when they're driving to the lake where their mother disappeared, it's almost impossible to tell if it's their internal monologues that we're hearing, if they are actually communicating with each other. Part of that has to do, again, with this technique Sarah Dina Smith employs. It's found footage kind of. Some things happen both at the very beginning and the very end, which question the idea of found footage to begin with. One of the things that I've really grown to appreciate about found footage, and I'll probably end up talking more about some of those in later episodes, is how it does offer a empathetic glimpse into pressures women face. I actually think that the horror film Unfriended last year did an excellent job of that. But here it gets so deep into the emotional ties and how they come out physically. And I just love how Adina focuses on 
the space and in those rare moments of closeness, you could look at almost any frame of the three sisters in this movie and get a crystal clear idea of their relationship and baseline idea of their personalities. When I said that the Midnight Swim was extremely special to me. Most people, when they get married, on the male side in particular, when they have their bachelor party, they go out to strip clubs, or they go out to an arcade, or find some way of getting drunk and blowing off what they presume will be the bachelor's last bit of steam before getting married. I actually had a panic attack in a bar where we were going to sing karaoke, and instead of sitting around for that, I took my friends back who were in my wedding party, and we watched The Midnight Swim. Because The Midnight Swim, it makes me feel safe. There's a lot I can go into there, so I'm just kind of try and let it trickle out as we talk. It shows such a comfortable familiarity of emotions, just how complex they can be, and family, those physical things that we do to try and keep ourselves centered, and the words that we tell each other, whether they're true or not, to try and get close to try and understand each other. This is the fourth time I've watched it, and admittedly, the first time I watched it, I was at a loss to even try and review it, to try and write about it. It wasn't until the second time I watched it that I ended up dreaming about my safe space. Uh, it's a combination of the movie theater I, I worked at for five years and then the little efficiency apartment I had at the time. And then once I made that connection from my dreaming safe space to the ethereal conversations and lyricism of the Midnight Swim that my review was finally able to just flow out. Talking about something in a written format versus talking about something verbally they're two different beasts. So I assume, and I hope this is a safe assumption, that this was your first time with it, unless you managed to catch it in one of the festivals it screened at. I'm going to be honest with you. I had not heard of this film until you suggested it. Even when I ordered it from Amazon, because it wasn't on Netflix up here in Canada, I was looking at the box cover and the description of it. And the box cover on the Amazon site was of the three sisters, I guess, lying on the ground and June with that kind of sinister look on her face. I went in thinking this was going to be a straight-up horror film, and I also thinking that this is probably the most obscure film that we've talked about on the show so far. I absolutely love the hell out of this movie. There is so much going on, but I was I was just captivated. And I, I know you had mentioned earlier about the film being lyrical and gentle, and for me, it was hypnotic and at times a little eerie. And what struck me most about this film, and which is why I find the review that you so eloquently gave the dramatic reading to a few moments ago, um, <laughs> so 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 strange is how they say that nothing happens in this film, and there is so much that's happening in this film. The family aspect of it captured me. And as you had pointed out, she does a fascinating job of bringing us into the fold to the point where we not only know the dynamics of the sisters, but I would argue that we also know the dynamics of the mother in relation to the sisters, having only seen the mother in a few key scenes. And there's just a wonderful building of character in this film. And then there is that 
whole other level, which is the more eerie or at least unsettling level that is related to the lake and this local folklore that's going on. So I'm amazed. If anything, I would assume that someone might walk away slightly confused or with their head spinning, but just to walk away and say nothing happened and evoke that it was dull and boring. This film is far from that. I, I thought it was wonderful, but that's just my initial response to it. I'm kind of impressed that you were able to to have that strong of an initial response, but it's that kind of movie. I can understand if people don't create their own immediate emotional connection to things, but as you mentioned, there is a menace to it that is not present in a way that we would typically assume. Like Looking, like you said, at the cover, you might almost assume that this is kind of a single white female sort of thing, that June, the littlest sister of the three, is some kind of dangerous conduit between the two. That's not the case. That's why this makes this so complex, is that June, Issa, who's the middle sister and a little flighty, and then Annie, who is the oldest sister, they all are kind of each other's enemy, even though they love each other. And the way those relationships play out with each other, and then how mom is a constant presence, even though we never get to physically see her, we only get to see this movie that she made that's very New Age-esque, asking for help in protecting the lake in this political measure. This time watching that around, that scene ended up hitting on how everyone misrecognizes the other's emotional space or what they need. Before they put in the video, they're singing the theme of take a stand against greed and fall into blue. But when they watch the video, it's not sing-songy. It's wonderfully earnest. That may be what kind of turns people off from thinking about this, because it is so bare. Even when the characters try and jokingly distance themselves, we get a reminder of the emotional truth of that distance, much like the mother in that video and how her daughters don't remember that correctly. Also in the interactions that they have with Josh, who is a, a neighbor who used to date Annie, or at least it's really hinted at, the way that he is having trouble navigating all of their emotional spaces, there's that great shot right after Issa recognizes Josh and invites him over for dinner. It cuts straight to Annie, very angrily preparing food. Issa, in the shot previous, I said, oh yeah, Annie's not going to mind. That's maybe the most direct example of how, even though they are sisters and love each other, they're very much trapped in their own way of emotionally communicating. Annie's forced smile, taking on that mother role in a moment, and I want to talk more about her taking on the other role in a devastating scene later on, but that definitely needs to be its own thing. This moment when she's about to serve dinner and she's trying to be the perfect hostess and basically the mom, her anger translating so directly into that false front and then the way June still separates herself via her camera and Issa, her palm reading, shows these complex inner lives in such 
quick time. We get these whimsical introductions of characters in other movies, and here, a palm reading, angry parmesan slicing, and a camera reveal so much about the sisters that we would not get from so many other movies. If we can jump to the camera aspect, because it's such a pivotal point for this film, a lot of issues I have with found footage films is that you have to, or at least the director has to find a way to make the camera keep rolling and justify no matter what the situation that someone would want to carry the camera around. And what I really loved about this film, and I guess it's found footage-esque quality, is that the camera is very much a coping mechanism for June that the other sisters just learn to accept over the years. So for people like Josh, or the real estate agent, anyone who comes into their inner circle is quickly taken aback by the fact that June needs to record stuff, that she's like the family documentarian. But I also like that we get plenty of moments where June puts the camera down and it's either in front of the camera or you see her feet or sometimes you don't even see anyone in the frame, but you just hear what's going on. There was something about that that really stood out to me because it showed the confidence that Sarah Dina Smith had within the construction of her characters that she didn't need the camera to be a crutch it's a crutch for june herself but it's not a crutch for the film as a whole it doesn't hinder as you said the scene with the grating of the cheese or after they come back fishing and annie has that oh i thought we were just gonna have a sister's reference like you still get those inner dynamics those moments of sisterly connection be it amusing or just heart-wrenching i don't know i just loved how it was all put together and the found footage stuff did not ruin the film it was a nice accompaniment to it and the way june uses the camera in those moments where it is set down something that i latched on to pretty heavily with this fourth go around is that those are the most emotionally painful moments or those moments where there is a solid misrecognition of everyone's needs because there's one fascinating portion where june sits down the camera and she just starts going through her mom's book of phone numbers she calls one of the locations that you know mom used to frequent you know asking how she's doing you know where is she now and then when she gets the news June doesn't really react as June. She is able to distance herself in a way that she pretends to be the stranger. That is a moment where we would expect your typical movie character to break down and say, oh no, that was my mother. But it really highlights how the camera is a useful coping mechanism for how June communicates with the world. Because at that point, the camera was down by her own volition. She gets to enact her fears and kind of her dangerous desires as she creeps slowly towards jumping into the lake with either swimsuits or uh, the wetsuit and getting herself physically prepared for the idea of going into the lake after her mother. I don't think that if this late film climax of a huge argument that takes place between the three after it's revealed June may have had more of a hand in what's going on than she let on, that is the other side of the coin. The camera is not down when they have their argument by June's choice. She has been commanded, basically, to put the camera down. Sarah Adina Smith 
took, in my mind, a brave approach to that scene. I'm a huge fan of dramas like In the Bedroom, and the emotional explosion there with Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson, a lot of its punch comes from the point when she slams a plate down on the ground, it shatters, and then she screams, everything! Here, that argument is almost entirely off-camera. We get a bit of their concern for June when they finally convince her to put the camera down, but when the sisters, in a way, almost start blaming her for her own troubles and for her coping mechanism, the camera is focused on a shadow of a tree coming in through a window on the carpet. That image of that casting shadow of something that they can't touch, but it is a darkness that is coming into the home, is such a remarkable accompaniment to the now rage-filled discussion that they are having entirely off-camera. The confidence that she had to focus on that symbol, that shot, that shadow, while the quote-unquote good stuff is happening off-camera, just blows my mind and it's not the only example of that in this movie but that's the one that hit me and made me astonished of how good a director she is yeah the shadow imagery is recurring throughout and it's really well placed especially with june on the dock one thing that i found interesting about june and i guess this is my last point about the whole found footage thing is that you raise a very good point about how when she puts the camera down it is the really emotional moments where intentions are really high and stuff happens but i love that at the same time she's there to witness it and feel it but then she also is quick to be the one to pick up the camera and make sure that she gets it again there's the great scene that you had alluded to earlier with annie and it's a scene when the sisters and josh are basically raiding the mother's closet and dressing up like mom and just reenacting all some of mom's old sayings for laughs and showing her activism ways and whatnot and when annie comes out all the bent-up tension that she's been carrying on her shoulders and the fact that her and her mom didn't get to have that i guess reconcile before the mom vanished erupts in a powerful way where she's singing a i think it was like a childhood song that she would sing to the girls and she just breaks down and gets really emotional and starts recounting when the mother basically was saying unnice things to her it's such a powerful moment and josh is i guess handling the camera at that point for the most part it's fixed on Anne, and you see the other two sisters starting to cry in bed and then there's a moment where june's just like okay this is getting too heavy i need to take control of that camera and we see that again i think there's another sequence in the kitchen earlier when isa and annie are starting to have an argument uh, june quickly gets up and gets behind that camera to document and i thought it was just a fascinating ap- approach a lot of filmmakers wouldn't have done that so that you're aware of the emotion but you're also aware of how people are interacting and moving within that space of all that emotion i thought was really really well done Annie's reactions in front of the camera really show how Sarah Dina Smith is thinking about how we respond almost voyeuristically and adjust ourselves in different ways depending on who is watching and who is recording. Because I'd say that the two key Annie scenes in The Midnight Swim are that dress-up at the end. It seems that the reason that Annie is able to explode like that 
to basically give a taste to her sisters of what she went through is because Josh is behind the camera. Josh is someone who we know hurt her in some way and is distant from that connection. I know he and Issa date and have their little romantic fling and such, but now that Josh is behind the camera and the sisters have assumed this role as their younger selves and she is now the mother. She's not assuming a mother role anymore. In that moment, she becomes the mother. She's able to give everyone that emotional glimpse that devastating look into what life was like for her and i would say if it wasn't josh behind the camera she would still be putting up that front she would still be putting up that forced smile she may be able to cope in a different way that's also shown earlier in the moment where annie is revealed in a different way they all go swimming the three sisters and josh in the lake isa in her very misplaced moment of fanciful playing pretends to drown for a moment pretends that something grabbed her and and josh followed suit what's important about that moment is right before annie is standing in her underwear she's happy she is talking to the camera and kind of having this sing-song newscast approach this is quite literally the most exposed we see annie until she becomes her mother late in the movie it is important that once it's revealed that it's a joke and she does become so enraged she keeps her face underwater for the entire swim back when she is angry. She's never that exposed again as herself, not as herself as mom. It goes back to that relationship and how the sisters connect with each other. We know of Annie's discomfort with Josh, but since it's June behind the camera, and since Annie is more comfortable with June's use of the camera than Josh's or anyone else's. It just shows that beautiful balance of the physical symbols of what we see going on. Annie choosing to silence the world in the water when she has exposed herself. That, man, I, I think I could probably do this with every scene in The Midnight Swim, but I, I wanted to focus on Annie for a moment and how she responds when different people are behind the camera and what that exposes from her. I, I'd say that of the three, Issa is maybe the one least affected by who is behind the camera, but there are some other interesting bits from her I, I want to get into, but those are the Annie thoughts I had right now. Oh, well, we can definitely get into those because when you're talking about that scene in the water, that's also important because it ties into a major theme that's going on and also, I guess, some of the darker aspects of this film because a few scenes earlier, you get them talking in the kitchen about this old folklore of the Seven Sisters. As a joke, one evening they go out to the lake with Josh and try and summon the sisters, but to no avail, nothing happens. So when that scene happens, with the water and they're all playing and they pretend to drown that was the first instance for me seeing it as a first timer i was like oh man all right something's we're getting into the the sinister aspect of it and then they pull that tension and then they release it again oh it's just a joke it's just a joke but you realize that the water itself has a very powerful allure for all of them because annie seems to be again because she's maybe the motherly 
one. She seems to be the one who's to brush off the water the most. Ilsa gets kind of lured into its aura when she reels in the shawl. And I loved the shot of Ilsa on the boat wearing the shawl and a few scenes earlier she's kind of all happy-go-lucky and now she's almost like in a hypnotic trance on the boat and just the way how that scene was shot was just wonderful i loved how as we start going through the sisters and as that shawl in the water becomes more present you start to see that annie's the strong one doesn't get bothered by ilsa as you said doesn't really worry about who's watching her or whatnot but she can kind of get lured in by things like she's lured in by josh or her attraction to josh the whole shawl kind of gets her but she's able to break free where June, who's already unstable from the beginning, she is the one who, depending on how you look at it, is the weakest of the three and the one who completely gets engulfed in the pull of the ocean. And there's that great moment where Ilsa is telling the camera about how sometimes you need to throw that reel in to catch something. And she's talking about the fishing, but you know she's really talking about her throwing the line in and grabbing Josh. By the time I got to the end of the film and I was thinking back to that line, I was like, well, no, it's actually the water that was throwing the lure and, and pulling all these sisters in. And June was the one that I think got hooked, if you will. But it just added an interesting dimension to how they connected to each other and also how they connect through the water to their mother. See, and that's where Issa gets really interesting for me, because we've talked about those moments where she enters into kind of a trance state and how she is unaffected by the camera. There's that one great shot when Josh and Issa start connecting, where June is watching them and Issa is perfectly content. They're cuddling, they're kissing, they're happy. But as soon as Josh notices that the camera is on them, he conceals the two of them together. And Issa doesn't take the blanket off. You know, she's comfortable with the camera, she's comfortable with whatever. It seems throughout that Issa's comfort and some of the kind of more new agey aspects like palm reading and the story that she tells about the, the river of forgetting and the river of remembering that ties into the more spiritual aspects of the Midnight Swim, that Issa's beliefs or the image that presents itself, it is that. It is something of a front when that feel good vibe, when that kind of ambling spirituality gets challenged, she is the first to revert almost to an aggressive state. When June takes one of her first swims, not entirely, you know, she's kind of testing the water and goes out by her own. Issa just says that she was worried and then just tells June, don't do that again. I can't do this again. And it shows how Issa's coping mechanism, while it's all pleasant and friendly on the outside, I think it's the weakest coping mechanism of the three because when it gets challenged, much like her breakup with Josh later on in the movie, she's the first to kind of revert and retreat completely. Annie has to do the same thing. Like after the swim where Issa and Josh hold that nasty prank on her, she also has to retreat to some kind of semblance of structure. She goes to the desk, she arranges things on her dresser after she takes a shower, and I don't think that June is weak or how you put it i guess the most easily drawn in 
by the lake because that plays to sort of the menacing aspect of the midnight swim june it seems is one of the, the quietest victims annie she has her emotional moments that highlight what she went through but june is responsible for maybe the most inexplicable wonderful terrifying moment annie wants them to have that sister's day and then when they finally do have the sister's day it's june with the camera down and we think it's just her and then she starts singing along to that song that's something that's not out of place in like a Judd Apatow movie like I would say that the, the end of the 40 year old virgin is the closest thing but they are still galaxies apart in terms of what they're singing and what it means but that whole scene June seems to aggressively understand where their connection is because when this is all said done they're all going to go back to their separate lives and it's only because of a concentrated effort that the sisters are reconnecting because of this tragedy and i like how that music video is is just a microcosm of that hostile yet loving relationship in its entirety there are moments of levity in there they don't come from june annie actually smiles and dances a bit isa gets into it a bit but that shot that again is on the dvd cover of the three women laying down that's not a comforting image and neither is the one of june coming out of her room and almost headbanging herself into the carpet even though the song is this lovely little tune june it just feels like she's the ultimate victim or i guess she's the one who suffers the cross of the family most when annie's motherhood comes into play or lack thereof because of again that heartbreaking scene where she has to talk about isa about the miscarriage it turns hostile her motherliness turns hostile towards june and they aren't really interested in helping her they just say you know you've gotten better but you can't do this their aid ends whereas isa again she drops the naturalistic new agey hope and love thing and is nasty to her i think one of the most open and honest lines of dialogue in the entire movie is when june is just screaming painfully why are you doing this to me because they are doing this to her and that she hates them I believe that. In that moment, I believe that June really does hate them and, and that she has had to distance herself from this family with the camera. So I think that the lake is more the conduit of problems and where June, we can only presume, ends up instead of her maybe being weak and being consumed by it she is more or less hurt by her sisters and the lake happens to be the mechanism for that hurt coming out I don't know if I took it as the lake being the mechanism for the hurt. Like, I understand she's upset with her sisters and stuff, but I, I don't know. But I think we're downplaying the fact that the reason why her sisters are so upset is because of actions that she did, whether willingly or unwillingly, right? They're trying to call to attention something that is going on that she has been denying. And for the most part, June's interactions with the lake, like her serious interactions, happen when others aren't around or they're sleeping. She's getting 
maybe pulled as being the wrong term, but she's being drawn into the lake um, further, and she's doing all this, I guess, reconnaissance on her own. Even when they have that musical number, which, again, I could see would turn some people off, the opening of that musical number starts off with such an eerie tone. She's looking out, and she turns to the camera slowly and menacing, and then it turns into this elaborate and just delightful musical number that scene where they are on the carpet that i was talking about that's on the amazon site that wasn't even on the actual dvd that i got the dvd <laughs> that i got had a very interesting artwork but there was like birds on it and compass and it almost looks like a, a map to like a, a solar system and installation like it, it makes more sense when you see the film but again it was one of those things where thinking i was going to get all oh, this really sinister film based on what the ad on amazon was and then i got this dvd which was completely different cover and i was like well what is this film and even that uh, <laughs> musical number when it starts and it's also sinister i'm like oh something's crazy is gonna happen and then what we get is a crazy wonderful musical number i was like this film is awesome on so many different levels but it's interesting because even through all of that we go back to again the thing that we've been hitting on a lot of the connection and i think with june the reason why i was saying that she's the weak one i she seemed the one more prone to her outcome from the very beginning because when they're in the car and they're talking about the theories about what happens when you die and stuff with like reincarnation and whatnot ilsa to me was always the one who had the most open mind to that stuff annie had to be the motherly one and then because june is an individual who can't even eat with her family like she will sit at the table and then has to eat alone or film herself eating alone there was just a lot of markers that told me if something was going to happen she would be the one that it would happen to so that's how i ter interpret her as being weak and i don't know maybe weak is the wrong terminology using but that's how i saw her I think that's where we've really got to take into account the very end when she does finally go for her swim. One of the key things about good found footage movies and great found footage movies is that we have to keep in mind that there is an editor somewhere who put these scenes together in a way for a specific audience. And it, that's very meta. And I kind of understand why it's difficult for some people just to talk about found footage movies in general in, in such simple terms just focusing on what happens on the screen, but someone assembled this footage together. That's why that very end redeems June. So we have to question what exactly is it that is actually doing the recording. We know she uses a camera, but unless the camera, I guess, fell into a wormhole with June or something, then those last scenes don't make any sense. That's why I can't see June as weak. She is the one who took the chance that Issa muses about and Annie completely dismisses. And if we're going to go on the logic of the camera sees what the camera sees, and this happened, but it was assembled, then whatever June did, whatever she endured in life, based on those final shots of new life, her soul has learned enough. She goes from being June to being someone else 
And in the context of the movie, that means she must have gone through the river of remembering. Because if we're going to look at the technique and consider that an editor has to put this together, it's spiritual. It's nothing but spiritual. Again, when we talk about the lake and then the camera being either mechanisms for the trauma or coping mechanisms for the trauma, that means that this recording, this last bit, are the memories that they're discussing when they say that you go through the river of remembering if you're if you're reborn considering all the hints that are dropped and especially that final argument with the shadow tree of how much the sisters Issa and Annie put on June she it comes across more as a martyr to me more, more someone who is shouldering some of the burden in a different way and since it doesn't express itself either via the new age spirituality front that Issa puts up or Annie's devotion to finding work to do that she I don't want to say is is the heroine but it seems like she's the one who understands and because she took that leap because of the pain that she went through and because of her attempts at cataloging things and kind of helping people deal with the loss in their way her soul has learned what it needed to learn. It just looks like weakness from the outside because that may not be our means of coping. But there's so many hints as to the pain that her sisters do put her through that it just seems like at the end she she one isn't the right word, but she transcended in a way that her sisters still can't. I agree that she definitely transcended the it's funny because to me the ending wasn't problematic until you raised it here because i looked at it as by time we get to the end the camera i know i took it that she was essentially the camera going through because we had that scene earlier on where there's a great shot of june taking a, a shot of herself and she puts the camera in the water and you've got that fractured image of her and i always thought that was great and throughout the film they had like you know how she's editing and showing footage of stuff that she's done but there was moments where through other forces or just her own skilled camera trickery where the camera was moving in ways that it couldn't have been moving if she wasn't there. And just the way how the, the scenes were shot, she's at one end. Of, she's basically in, in view of the camera. We can see her. So it's like, well, someone else is probably doing it. But after the whole argument with the sisters and stuff, I don't know. I'm going to have to watch it again. But I, I took it as that final swim, we are getting it completely from her perspective that she's become one with the lake and it's gone through the river of remembrance and then you get that great final shot that i'm sure is going to have people scratching their heads um <laughs> and again we're, we're going to dance around it a little bit because i think it's just something that you really need to experience but i didn't even give the found footage aspect in those moments a second thought my brain pretty much was like, all right, the camera now is June's eye in her mind. That's why I took it. But now I have to go back and watch this film yet again to dissect those moments. <laughs> Please do. I, I think that maybe one of the big differences in our reception here was so difficult to write about this the first time around when I reviewed it over at Can't Stop the Movies was grappling with what the camera is here. Whenever I watch a found footage movie, like I said, I consider the editor. Who is it that put this together? Looking at those final scenes, 
I would say that the entire movie is from June's perspective, but because of the camera, we're able to get just enough distance to really understand what's going on. And that's kind of a funny thing to say, because as enigmatic and at times menacing and beautiful as The Midnight Swim is, I never felt lost watching it. And I think it has to do with how Sarah Dina Smith hits those emotional tones so perfectly that in the moment, I don't have questions. But then when it comes to, I guess, to me trying to apply my own coping mechanisms, and I cope with hurt and tragedy by writing, that their coping mechanisms and June's coping mechanisms and that profound spiritual transformation all just kind of flows together better now versus that first time I watched it, which I think is kind of where you are, but because we're both our own separate people, we're interpreting that differently. Now that I own the film, it's one I'm definitely going to be watching over and over again. And it's because you're talking <laughs> about... We were mentioning how difficult it was for you to write about it and the various reviews. There's one review I want to point listeners to, and it's on Screen Anarchy, and it's by a local Torontonian or Greater Toronto Area writer, Kurt Halfyard, who also writes for Row 3 and is co-host of the Cinecast podcast. And when I saw that he was quoted on the DVD that I got, I just sent him a little message just to say, hey, did you know that you got recognized? And he said, well, you know, you should check out the review. And he also did an interview with Sarah Dina Smith on that site as well. So we'll include the link to the interview in the show notes because it's a, it's a really fascinating piece. But there was a line in his in his review that kind of stuck with me and, it's, and has been sticking with me as I've been thinking about this film for the past few days. And he says that the Midnight Swim suggests that our connection to others is our lifeline to ourselves. Perhaps we should not or even cannot swim alone. And I thought that was a nice way to tie in everything that's going on. And especially as we've been talking about extensively the bond and the connection with sisters and family in general. And there's a line in the interview where Sarah Dina Smith talks about the mother and how she loves her children, but almost has like a, I forget the term she used, but I think it was like intellectual distance and how she views the children as her greatest experiment. Because there's a, that line earlier in the film where I forget which sister, but someone says, oh, we're just having another child type of thing, almost as brushing off the mother's joy. And I thought that was kind of interesting as well, because, and maybe because I'm a parent, how we impact and infuse ourselves on our children and what happens as our children get older and we're no longer there how do they view us i always thought that was a really interesting aspect to this film as well sorry i know i'm rambling but there's just so much in this film that i'm processing and it's great so highly recommend if you're listening to this check out this film and another reason to seek out this film is Sarah Dina Smith has a new film that's coming out that played TIFF this year, Buster's Malhart with Remy Malk from Mr. Robot. And I remember hearing a lot of good things at TIFF about that film, but I had no idea who the director is. And now I'm kind of kicking myself for not checking that film out. But my brain at this point is screaming at me. It's like, there's so many other things to talk about, but all good things, they do have to come to an end. Yeah, and I was thinking, we were discussing earlier how tough it is to, to sell this film to people who haven't seen it. And I would say family drama, killer musical number, <laughs> creepy, creepy shawl. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that and see what happens. 
And if you think that we got it way off the mark, let us know. You can contact us via Twitter at changingreelsac, or you can send us an email at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. Andrew, where else can they reach you? Well, you can hit up my Twitter at can'tstopdrew. And while I'm having some server transfer snafus. Uh, of course, my website, Can't Stop the Movies, is still up and running. Primary focus is here, but if you want to read my Midnight Swim review and maybe a few other reviews, you know, whatever catches your eye, go ahead and hit me up at can'tstopthemovies.com. And I can be reached on Twitter at smallmind. Unless you have anything else, Andrew, I think we're going to call this one a wrap and maybe go for a swim. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I guess for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. We'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.